We have an interesting piece of instruction that comes from the Spirit Prophecy. It says, When the gospel ministers and the medical missionary workers are not united, there is placed on our churches the worst evil that can be placed there. I know a fair number of ministers, and I know a fair number of doctors. And I wouldn't want to uh, say that any of the ones that I know are completely separated in their work. But I think it's fair to say that we have yet to find God's ideal Okay. Oh, there we go. That's so much easier anyhow. You can edit that out too. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> I don't think we've found God's ideal for the blending of the gospel ministry and the medical missionary work. And so that's kind of what we're going to spend some time on. We're looking at an ideal that has never yet been attained. And I think it's important to bear that in mind that not only have God's people in the past never successfully met this ideal, but we haven't either. We have a great deal of reason to be charitable and patient with those who've gone before us, even when we can see their mistakes. Because if they could look at us, they would probably see our mistakes. <laughs> well, let's see. Let's look at the ideal for a bit here. The truth for this time embraces the whole gospel. Rightly presented, it will work in man the very changes that will make evident the power of God's grace upon the heart. It will do a complete work and develop a complete man. Then let no line be drawn between the genuine medical missionary work and the gospel ministry. Let these two blend in giving the invitation. Come, for all things are now ready. Let them be joined in an inseparable union, even as the arm is joined to the body. What does the Lord mean by this? Well, I'm going to just maybe cut out some of the suspense and say I think that we'll find in the course of the you know, things we look at today that what he means by that is essentially what Jesus did. You know, we talk about Jesus being our pattern. And sometimes it's, you know, it's admittedly a little tricky knowing what all that includes. You know, Jesus probably wore sandals. Does that mean I have to wear sandals? You know, I don't think that's probably the, the part of the pattern that's important. But what is? What is, you know? And... How does that play out in the life? So, okay, I'm going to just tell you that I, I think we're going to find that this ideal, this inseparable union of, of gospel spiritual work and physical medical missionary work is best exemplified in the life of Christ. Okay, well, let's go on. This is an interesting statement since I'm into city mission work. 
I have been shown that in our labor for the enlightenment of the people in the large cities, the work has not been as well organized, or the methods of labor as efficient in other churches that have not the great light we regard as so essential. Why is this? Because so many of our laborers have been those who love to preach. And many who were not thoroughly qualified to preach were set to work. And a large share of the labor has been put forth in preaching. Is preaching a bad thing? No. It's not a bad thing. If it's part of the whole package of preaching, teaching, and healing. But by itself, maybe not so good. After all, Jesus spent more time healing people than he did preaching. But still, going back to our first statement, the worst evil? A little grammar check here from an old English teacher. What kind of word is worst? It's a superlative. What does a superlative mean? Okay, well, that's a good thing. It's not an English class, but yeah, okay. <laughs> a superlative means it goes as far as you can go in any direction, okay? The smallest is a superlative. The largest is a superlative. The fastest is... This is the worst. What is worse than the worst? Nothing. Nothing. Unless you, you know, do some crazy thing like I occasionally do and come up with words like the worsterist, right? Okay? But normally, there's nothing worse than the worst. And Ellen White was not given to a lot of exaggeration. You know, you read, you read what she wrote, and she rarely is blowing hot air at you. <laughs> she's, she's, when she says worst, I'm thinking we better pay some attention. Well, okay, so preaching, you know, it made our work less efficient than other churches. You know, God's people were not even coming up to the level of everybody else. Sometimes we got to be careful about how quickly we throw stones at other people. Sometimes they're doing a better job than we are. Well, that's gone. The world will be convinced not so much by what the pulpit teaches as by what the church lives. The preacher announces the theory of the gospel, but the practical piety of the church demonstrates its power. Now, there are times... In my brief existence, that I have felt that the theory somewhat overshot the demonstration. <laughs> Not trying to be critical. Well, let's see, it's gone. Doors that have been closed to him who merely preaches the gospel will be open to the intelligent medical missionary. God reaches hearts through the relief of physical suffering. So, you know, there's a unique place and a calling for medical missionary work. In one of my earlier breakout sessions, we took a quick look through to see who all was supposed to be involved in medical missionary work. Sometimes we think that means the doctors and the nurses. I'll probably forget a few, but it seems like it included canvassers, Gospel workers, Bible workers, um, 
and uh, students and church members. So if you don't fit into any of those categories, you can probably be excused. But other than that, you are supposed to be a medical missionary. Okay? This is a particularly challenging statement. I like this one. The union of Christ-like work for the body and Christ-like work for the soul is the true interpretation of the gospel. Now, let's do a little more grammar stuff here. What is that word? It is an article. Which article? It's the definite article. What are the other two articles? Okay. Uh, uh, or a, or how do you want to say it? But a and an and the are the articles, okay? This is a car. This is an apple. But that is the elephant. How many elephants do I have? One. Uno, okay? <laughs> the definite article, talking one. So, how many true interpretations of the gospel are there? And what is that? Okay. That's the true interpretation. I don't think we really want to be going around passing out false interpretations. Something to think about. Okay. Let's go on. Let me get myself organized here. Where is that? The gospel ministry. Uh, there we go. Okay. The gospel ministry is needed to give permanence and stability to the medical missionary work. And the ministry needs the medical missionary work to demonstrate the practical working of the gospel. Neither part of the work is complete without the other. Okay. Um, they have to go hand in hand. Going on. The medical missionary work is not to be carried forward as something apart from the work of the gospel ministry. The Lord's people are to be one. There is to be no separation in his work. The education of students in medical missionary lines is not complete unless they are trained to work in connection with the church and the ministry. I'm going to hazard a guess that this is an area on which we could potentially improve in some of our medical training. Just a hunch. Ideally, originally, of course, within the Adventist church, there was no such thing as a private practice physician. Physicians were medical missionaries employed by the church, paid ministerial salary. That's the way it was originally. Well, let's see. We still haven't necessarily answered the question of why it's the worst evil when the gospel, gospel, missionary, gospel ministry and the medical missionary workers are not united. It places on the churches. Notice that. It's, it's kind of interesting. She says it places on the churches the worst evil. Doesn't place the evil on the medical missionary workers. It places it on the churches. Kind of interesting. Not sure I fully understand that. A month ago, I found a document that I'd never seen before. And for those of you who were here Thursday night, 
it came out of those boxes of notebooks. I'm still working my way through those. And a month ago, I found a document that I'd never seen before, and a whole lot of other people hadn't seen either. It was from Dr. Kellogg in the year 1893. <clears throat> Got to set the stage for you a little bit here so you can understand the significance of this. In 1893, Dr. Kellogg was on track with what he was doing. It was a few years later when he started kind of deviating off, okay? He was at that time being opposed by some, at least, of the ministers. And as Ellen White said, there were some who made war upon him. That's her words. Nonetheless, in February of 1893, he spoke at the Ministerial Institute, which came immediately before the General Conference session that year. That was in February. Uh, in order to understand the tenor of the times, you have to remember that in November, November 22nd of the year before, so just two and a half months before, well, maybe not even quite, yeah, yeah, almost two and a half months, Ellen White's statement had appeared in the, um, in the Review and Herald that said, the loud cry of the third angel has already begun in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ. Now, the loud cry is a big deal. And to find out that the loud cry had begun was obviously something of an exciting event. So there was a buzz in the air, let's put it that way. But in February, when Dr. Kellogg spoke, he had reservations. Now, this was at a time when Dr. Kellogg was uh, occasionally accused of believing the testimonies more than he believed the Bible. He was a very strong believer in the testimonies. If you remember my comment yesterday about how he stayed five years ahead of the medical profession. Okay. So he was not trying to pick a fight with Ellen White. Ellen White had said the loud cry has already begun in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ. He wasn't trying to pick a fight with Ellen White at all. But he had reservations. And in his talks, he pointed out dozens of Bible verses and spirit of prophecy quotations that said that God's people needed to be examples of divine love, that they needed to let their light shine in good works of mercy and benevolence to all around them. He talked about Isaiah chapter 58, the great medical missionary chapter. And he pointed out that the chapter ends with a whole bunch of promises. God's people would ride on the high places of the earth. They'd be fed with the heritage of Jacob, their father. Their light would rise in obscurity. They would call and the Lord would say, here I am. But he also pointed out that all of that was conditional on the first part of the chapter. Now, everybody agreed. See that, especially at the end of that chapter, it goes down and talks about those who turn their foot from the Sabbath, right? Talks about the repairers of the breach. Everybody knew that was talking about Adventists. So this is us. And Kellogg's saying, you know, your light rising in obscurity 
being riding on the high places. That's the loud cry right there, folks. And it's conditional. Well, hmm. The if-then nature of the promises was unmistakable. If you keep the fast that I have chosen, right? Then, oh, there's the fast, I'm sorry. If you keep the fast that I have chosen, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. It says, when you do that, Then your light shall break forth in the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. This is the New King James. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. The conditions were too clear to argue with. If you extend your soul to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as the noonday. Well, when Kellogg turned to quoting spirit prophecy, things just got worse. When the advocates of the law of God plant their feet firmly upon its principles, living out in their daily lives the spirit of the commandments, and exercise true benevolence to men, then will they have power to move the world. It is impossible for those who profess allegiance to the law of God to correctly represent the principles of that sacred decalogue while slighting its holy injunctions to love their neighbor as themselves. Now the problem with all this was, as Dr. Kellogg pointed out, Adventists really hadn't done anything that fulfilled the conditions. <clears throat> in 1891, at the General Conference session, January of 1891, Dr. Kellogg came to the General Conference with a recommendation and an endorsement from Ellen White that they start an orphanage they already knew of at least 200 Adventist orphans who had no place to call home. Some of them were in state care. Some of them were in Catholic homes. Some of them were on the street. Kellogg said, it's time for us to have an orphanage. How can you claim you're a Christian and not take care of the orphan and the widow? And so in 1891, they voted to do that in January 1891, and they issued a general call for donations to the entire church through the pages of the Review and Herald. By January 1892, they had just about $17,000, which was not enough to really get started with anything. The appropriate committees met, had no idea what they could do with $17,000. I mean, you know, that was a lot more money than it sounds like today, but still, it wasn't enough to really get them going on anything. They just didn't know. Nothing much they could do. It was during 1892, I haven't figured out which month yet, but I'm thinking about April or May. It was about that time, give or take, that a lady by the name of Mrs. Carolyn Haskell, a Presbyterian, 
came and visited the sanitarium, saw what Kellogg was doing kind of on his, his own personal hook for a, a group of orphans, and said, my husband died recently. I would like to give you some money as a memorial. I'll give you $30,000 if you build an orphanage for your Adventist orphans and simply name it in his honor. Well, I think I have a picture of that coming up here if I don't, haven't messed up my slide somehow. But. So Kellogg pointed out then in 1893, February of 1893, he said, we really haven't done anything yet. We haven't even taken care of our own orphans, let alone the poor and needy of the world. God had to send a Presbyterian lady to do that for us. Well, the implications were too obvious of what he was saying, and it were not well received by the audience. This is in the middle of one of his sermons. The loud cry has already begun! Dr. Kellogg, we ought to be able to show that we are doing what the Lord says should be done first. It has begun! I think this is incredibly gracious of him. Then we shall see this work that the Lord tells us must be done begin right away. <laughs> A little later, it got a little more direct even. Don't you think the loud cry has commenced? Kellogg said, I don't know. I am presenting this subject of medical missionary work from my standpoint. There is everything to indicate that the Lord is anxious to have the loud cry begin to sound, but he says these things referred to in Isaiah 58 must first be done, and so far the things that have been done in this direction have been done by other people, not by us. There's the Haskell home. $30,000 will not build that today. It was actually... Uh, a, a pretty commendable thing. It was, uh, it was not run like an, a regular orphanage. They had, I think, six different sections to the house that were semi-separated off, and it was run like six families. So each family had a group of kids, you know, and they functioned as a family. They just kind of string them all together with little babies on up to teenagers, you know, whatnot. It was, it was a pretty uh, progressive orphan care institution, let's put it that way. Okay, well, why is all this important? Some of you are, and some of you aren't, no doubt, familiar with the whole discussion of the loud cry and what happened to it. Ellen White says that it had begun in 1892. I can't tell this whole story right now, but in 1950, that issue came to the front. And for the last, what, 61 years now, there's been a rather major discussion which has kind of rattled the cages of Adventism 
as to the fate of the loud cry. For quite a while, the standard position of, I hate to even say it this way, but you know, the standard position of church leadership was that the loud cry was continuing on, on just fine, thank you. It started in 1892 and it was moving on forward to its glorious completion. That was a fairly hard position to defend from the spirit of prophecy, however, because the loud cry has certain features in its description that nobody can seem to identify as happening currently. The only other option was to say that the loud cry had in some way or the other ceased or been turned off or something. <coughs> Eventually, the position that the loud cry was continuing on pretty well died away. Nobody could maintain that continuously. And so it's left us with the rather dreary prospect of saying, we came really close to the second coming once upon a time, 110 years ago. But we don't really know why we didn't make it. We don't know what it would take to restart the loud cry. There's been a lot of debate and discussion about that. And for the last 60 years, those who have been looking at that question have done everything they could basically to find a theological answer to that. In the process, the doctrine of righteousness by faith has been tweaked and twisted, and rephrased, and maybe even reinvented. But nothing has reignited the loud cry in any obvious manner. So, what's wrong? I'm going to speak strictly for myself here. Because this is not something that I would have thought of before a month ago when I found these sermons from Kellogg in 1893. I'm going to say I think Kellogg was right. And I think the only way that the loud cry will be reignited is when God's people take up the work of helping other people, even, it be, even if it be to the total neglect of themselves. That sounds a little crazy. But let me toss a couple of questions at you. How big was Jesus' retirement fund? And what did he do for a house? Now, I am not saying, I do not believe, do not quote me, I mean, do not misquote me, okay? Do not jump to the conclusion, I'm saying that you all ought to run out of here, sell your houses, and donate alms to the poor. That's not what I'm saying. Just extra houses. <laughs> extra houses. I should find one of those. <laughs> you know, God is, is, is much, much, much smarter than I am. And I do not doubt for a moment that there are people who, in his plan, have extra houses. And it's his plan that they should. 
you will never see God's people all reduced to an equivalency. You will have the poor with you always, it says. And you can't have poor if you don't have somebody that has a little bit more. <laughs> he didn't say you'll all be poor. He says you'll have the poor with you always. There will always be differences, and it will be intentional and in God's good leading that there should be so. So I'm not in any sense pretending that I can toss out a prescription for everybody. But I can say this much. I think every Seventh-day Adventist needs to be striving to exemplify the true interpretation of the gospel, which is ministry to the body, ministry to the soul. Helping people. <laughs> it's funny, it's really easy to overlook that. We can get so caught up in, for me, things like history. I love history, it's fun. And there have been times, I suspect, from God's point of view, where I've made my little involvement in some of those things an idol. And I've missed the chances to help people that came past my face in one way or another. I think that needs to change. Here are some reasons why. Those who wait for the bridegroom's coming are to say to the people, Behold your God. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world, is a revelation of his character of love. The children of God are to manifest his glory in their own life and character. They are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. Now, I'm going to just throw my own interpretation on this, and I know that the wording is a little different, but I think this is the thought, nonetheless. When it says, Behold your God, where are they supposed to look? Are we telling them, you know, stare up into the sky? I believe what they're supposed to be telling them is, Look at God's church. It represents God. We are to manifest His glory in their own life and character. The last message is, is not a proclamation, it's a revelation. We need to be showing it. And it's interesting. When you go back to Ellen White's comment in 1892, she said, the loud cry of the third angel has begun in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ. She did not say proclamation of the righteousness of Christ. You could almost argue that she was talking about the Haskell home because the timing was there. Well, what do we do? I used this in an earlier meeting, but I really like it. God has given us a commission which angels might envy. Why would an angel 
envy my job. I just want to toss out just the way I look at it. If Jesus went to Gabriel and said, Gabriel, would you trade places with any of us here? Gabriel's response, I believe, would be in a heartbeat. Because we here, in this time, through all of eternity, and in this one location, through all of space, this is the only time and place that souls can be saved. They don't, they don't do much soul saving. There's not a lot of evangelism that goes on in heaven. <laughs> you know, I don't even think they have to have revival meetings much up there. <laughs> you know, uh, evangelism is here. And for, you know, 6,000 years, which is like a, a blink in the eye for eternity, I think the angels might envy our privileges. God has given us a commission which angels might envy. The church has been charged to convey to the world without delay God's saving mercy. This is the trust that he has given us, and it is to be faithfully executed. Medical missionary work is to be done. That's part and parcel of it. Thousands upon thousands of human beings are perishing in sin. The compassion of God is moved. All heaven is looking on with intense interest to see what character medical missionary work will assume under supervision of human beings. They saw how it worked out under Jesus. But he left it with us to carry on. Will men make merchandise of God's ordained plan for reaching the dark parts of the earth with a manifestation of his benevolence? Will they cover mercy with selfishness and then call it medical missionary work? I am not in any position to make accusations. But if I were going to guess, I think I'm skeptical enough to believe that we probably have done that sometimes. And that, clearly, will never finish God's work. Let's go on. Again, I've used these before. Sorry for those, but I want the repetition here. I love the pairing of these two statements. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. And it is the completeness of Christian character, excuse me, the completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. It's not really a matter of how many vigilings you eat. Well, going on. How is medical missionary work supposed to work its way out, huh? There is no change in the messages that God has sent in the past. The work in the cities is the essential work for this time. When the cities are worked as God would have them, the result will be the setting and operation of a mighty movement such as we have not yet witnessed. Amen. Now, the thing that's important about that, I should have put it on the, probably on the bottom of that page too, 
is that it's medical missionary work, which is the, the key to take the truth into the big cities. And when we do that, working them as God would have them, that mighty movement is a loud cry. Well, a favorite statement of mine. We shall see the medical missionary work broadening and deepening at every point of its progress because of the inflowing of hundreds and thousands of streams until the whole earth is covered as the waters cover the sea. That's, that's based off of Isaiah, and I think it's Hosea. The glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. She's equating medical missionary work with the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord is his character. Medical missionary work is to be the manifestation of the character of God. It all sort of starts to come together. <laughs> well, why is it the worst evil? Just give you my thought. When the medical missionary workers and the gospel workers are not united, there is placed upon the churches the worst evil that can be placed there. Here's my guess. The worst evil that can be placed on the churches, I think, is doing lots of stuff that looks like we're actually doing something to bring on the second coming. When it doesn't have a prayer to do it. God said, do it this way. And we said, well, let's try this instead. But it looks so good. It looks like we're doing something. And, and we actually have converts. And I'm not saying they're all false converts. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it ain't the tool for the job, and it's never going to get the job done. And I'm thinking that's pretty close to the worst evil. That's just my guess. There may be worse things that I'm not smart enough to figure out yet. <laughs> God probably has more worse in mind than I do. <laughs> so, here are my conclusions. Take them or leave them. <laughs> this is not a thus saith the Lord. So you're entirely entitled to say, Dave, I think you missed the ball this time. I believe that proclamation is the explanation of the demonstration. You got two parts there. And I would say that proclamation without demonstration is actually misinformation because we are not accurately representing the character of God. And I would guess that that may be the worst evil that can be placed on our churches. So, <clears throat> what's the take-home lesson? The take-home lesson, I think, is that the gospel is really pretty simple. The completeness of Christian character is attained when the desire to help and bless others springs constantly from within. 
let's practice being nice to people. Not foolishly nice, intelligently nice. Nice the way Jesus was nice. Now, I've got a, I've got a steep learning curve. I, I'm preaching to myself here, folks. I've got a huge learning curve. Because there's kind and loving, and there's foolishly enabling, right? You know? I, I'm, I'm still not a big believer in handing a $20 bill to some guy on the street corner who, you know, probably has plans for it. <laughs> you know? Maybe take him home and give him some food. You know? I, I, I could see that a lot, a lot faster. You know? I, I, I don't have the wisdom. I, I, I'm new at this game. But I think these are the rules of the game. And what is exciting to me is I see a lot of people who are from their own angles, perhaps. I mean, to me, I come with all this from, from history. It's, it's, that's, what's, that's what's, you know, finally put some pieces in place in my mind. But I know people who come at it from an entirely different angle and they come up with the same conclusion. I find that encouraging. <laughs> I find it exciting. I also find it troubling. Because, you know, the Lord leads his people around and around in circles until they learn a lesson. We've spent a hundred years going around this circle. That means that pretty much a whole generation has lived and died within the Adventist church. To the best of my knowledge, they never even really had this idea. What we did is we took some statements I'm ad-libbing here, but it's okay. There are some statements that were written to Dr. Kellogg reproving him for spending his time in certain lines of work. And the statement said, Dr. Kellogg, you have a special work. God has given you a work. This is not your work. And interestingly enough, probably the most quoted of those statements says, let the Salvation Army do their work. That's not your work. We're at a Salvation Army camp, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if they had camps 100 years ago. They were doing a lot of the city mission rescue work. That's what they were famous for back in those days. And Ellen White was telling, God was telling Dr. Kellogg, says, Dr. Kellogg, this is not your job. Now, Dr. Kellogg was a famous guy. Firestone, Thomas Edison, Funk and Wagnall, heads of you know, royalty from Europe all came to Battle Creek. And the way I understand it is the Lord was telling him, Dr. Kellogg, you have a special work to reach the influential of the world. You are not to spend your time down here in Chicago. But we've taken that and we've applied it across the board to the denomination. And this is why we don't do anything like that anymore. We are not to, you know, Dr. Kellogg took it too far. He spent, you know, way too much money. He got it all out of proportion. He tried to make 
Ellen White says he tried to take the right arm of the body and turn it into the body itself. Everything is done in order. Everything is done appropriately. I don't know what that means yet. I've got a steep learning curve. But I'm just thinking. It's been 100 years. I think we're going to get a crack at it. And I will be happy to come back to Oregon as soon as I have those answers. <laughs> I am fighting to keep one alive from day to day. You know? <laughs> We've, but you're exactly right. It's the practicality. You know, it begins in the home. I'll go with that. That's an excellent point. And hospitality and, and outreach begins in the home. We need to... We need to Take those who are cast out into our homes. Yes. That's what it says. Yes. And again, there's wisdom called for. Mm-hmm. How that works, exactly what to do and when to do it, is hard to say. Um, but that's where we're at. You're exactly right. That's, that's where we're at. And I sympathize with every one of you struggling to figure out. I, you know, you, if you heard my story Thursday night, I don't have a single answer. I made one little step forward, and this whole thing fell in my lap. And I said, thank you, Lord. You know? And so somebody writes to me and says, well, how do you get one of these started? And I said, pray for a miracle. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Do I know anything? I mean, that's like, that's like asking Moses, how do you split the Red Sea? You know? <laughs> well, I held up my rod, but it doesn't always work. <laughs> I don't have that answer. But we have to have that answer. That's the answer that God's people need to have. And I suspect it's going to be 100,000 a, a different answers. Because I don't think the case will ever come around the same as mine, and I'm sure that everybody else is, yeah, it's not a cookie cutter. But at the same time, I, do, I will say this much. It's clear from the council that when one of them finally gets going and has a little bit of prosperity, do not reinvest it in the business. Start a new one. When you, when you get into that, oh, let's put all the profits into the business, that's when you end up with these big mammoth institutions. Nah, don't do that. Okay, that much I think I have clear. Haven't really gotten to that point yet. <laughs> uh, but that's where we're at. And, and I think in its stark practicality, it's the most exciting thing in Adventist history I've seen ever. Now, I, I think we're sitting here looking at the opportunity staring us in the face, probably going to be augmented soon by means of natural and social disasters. And if we're ready, 
we will shine with the glory of God. Amen. And if we're not ready, a hundred years from now, some historian will be talking about us. But we won't have to hear it because we'll all be dead. Something about history makes you cynical. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think that's where we're at. And so, here's my challenge. When you drive off this campus today, find something new to do. Find something different. Press the boundaries. You know what? You will make a mistake or two. Don't stop. In an earlier session, I had a, have a, a slide I showed that it says that you may say that you've been generous to somebody and they did not receive it properly or I don't forget, you were greeted with contempt or something. I forget how your, your, your generosity was abused. I don't remember how it was said. It. She says, look at Jesus. He came to his own and his own received him not. And then she says, if your efforts are rejected 99 times, but the 100th time you succeed and a soul is saved, Oh, what a victory is gained. I think somehow we're going to have to start, even if we've got a bit of a bad batting average. <laughs> you know? I've got a lot to learn. But it's the most exciting stuff I've ever seen to try and learn. Because it has more prospect to it than anything else I've seen. And so I invite you to join me in trying to learn. Practical, hands-on, gospel, medical, missionary, evangelism. In whatever manner, in whatever setting, with whatever resources you can possibly throw at it. That's not all there is to it, though. You're right. There's, there's the church. There's the church. The whole church doesn't have to go charging off and doing something weird. You know? <laughs> and some Bible workers are doing... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a good point. And please do not think for a moment that I think it's sinful or negligent or something to have a job, <laughs> you know? Um, there will always be church members. The majority of God's people will be church members, you know, plugging along, pushing it forward, you know, like the minister announces the, the theory of the gospel, but it's the, it's the piety of the church which demonstrates the power of the gospel. Well, that's the church, you know. Just because you have a job doesn't mean you can't be nice to somebody. <laughs> so wherever you are, you know, like Paul said, you know, if you're a slave, live the gospel as a slave. 
If you can get your freedom, get your freedom. You know, wherever we are, I know that God has one step for the next, you know, has a next step for all of us, whatever it may be. Do not in any sense feel that you have to take the same step somebody else took. That's just wrong. But you have to take a step. <laughs> whatever it is, whatever it is, whatever God opens the door for you, lays the burden on your heart, however it happens. Invite a stranger to your house for dinner. <laughs> there you go. It begins in the home. Well, I thank you for your attention and for what I generally interpret as sympathy with my position here. <laughs> you may have reservations, some of you, and that's perfectly legitimate too. I believe God is ready to move things forward. And I believe it's people like you that are going to do the bulk of the work. And I'm happy to see that. Please stand with me in prayer. Father, we would be like Jesus, but we're not smart enough sometimes. We don't know what that means. I don't doubt that there will be some in this group who will be called from the plow, as it were, to do something special. We're also told there is great honor for those who faithfully stay at the plow and do as you would have them to, because we are all different. And Lord, whatever it may be in every individual circumstance and situation, I just ask your blessing upon each one. We ask your spirit to teach us the practical things, the day-by-day -day things. I pray that you would hold up before us constantly the pattern of Christ who went about doing good. Help us to retain our balance, that we would always combine the two, that we wouldn't simply preach the theory of the truth, nor that we would simply take sick sinners and make them healthy. Father, the task is great. We have never lived in a way that fully reflects the character of Christ. But that's what we're asking for. And Father, I know that in taking any step forward, we will encounter opposition, from the devil at least, and probably family, friends, co-workers, total strangers. So Lord, I pray your protection and your blessing on everyone who is determined to do your will. I pray that you would open our eyes to see and understand the dangers that surround us, Give us wisdom to know the influences to pay attention to and the ones to politely ignore. And I pray that you would prosper every effort. I thank you for myself. 
that with one small step forward, you gave me enough evidence that I could not turn my mind away from your plan. I'm sorry it took so much evidence for me to understand. I pray for those who may not be granted that, but that like Thomas, without seeing, they may believe and still press forward. And Lord, we long for the day when the medical missionary work will be swelled by hundreds and thousands of streams and will cover the surface of the earth with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We pray that you would make us each one of those streams. In Jesus' name and for his sake, we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.